Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Ultra processed foods account for 90% of the added sugar in our diet. Like us actually adding sugar at home is like pretty not not nearly as much as like the foods that we're buying and the convenient foods that like dominate our environment. If you look at animals and you try and say, okay, you have a choice between cocaine and sugar. Over 70% of the time, the animals will choose the sugar. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 158. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami board-certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well-being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Hello, hello, veggie lovers. How are you today? I hope you are having a very plantastic day and weekend. And for some of you, a three-day holiday. Hey, woohoo, how fun. Thank you for listening to this on your time off. I appreciate it so much. I have a special favor to ask. Super excited because Veggie Doctor Radio is nearing half a million downloads. We are almost to 500,000 downloads. Can you help me get there, please? I would love it if you took a screenshot of this podcast episode and shared it on your social media, share it in your stories or wherever you want and tag me. I would love to reshare it. I would love to interact with you, my listeners. I love hearing from you. Thank you so much for being so loyal, for listening to these episodes, for giving me feedback. I appreciate it so much. Let's get to half a million and beyond together. I want to give a shout out to MJ who left me a five-star Amazon review on my book, A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy. MJ titled it More Joy in My Life. MJ says, this summer I stumbled across Dr. Yami's TED Talk, then got into her podcast, Veggie Doctor Radio, which is fantastic, and then read her book. Now I'm a Dr. Yami super fan. Aw, thank you. She gives such solid advice, but makes it so personable, accessible, and doable. And she inspired me to make more sustainable changes in my lifestyle and how I feed my kids and parent them around food. It was actually liberating and has brought more joy into my life. MJ, that just gave me full body chills. There's so much joy inside of me. 
I'm so happy that one of my main goals of writing this book was achieved through your experience and much love to you and your family. Thank you so much. Remember that the information on this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not meant to replace careful evaluation and treatment. So if you have concerns about you or your child's eating, nutrition, or growth, consult a doctor. Okay, I'm not going to lie. After I finished this interview with Dr. Ashley Gearhart, I was so hyped up. I had to go outside, jump up and down in place, do deep breathing, stretch. I could not calm down. Like my whole body was hyped. It was so good. It was so good. I kept her for 30 extra minutes. The interview is not that long, but we spent a lot of time talking off recording and she's brilliant. She's brilliant. She's balanced. She is amazing. I hope I have the chance to either meet her in person someday or have her back on the show. She answered so many of my questions and really helped me understand some things I didn't know about food addiction. So Dr. Ashley Gearhart is an associate professor of psychology in the clinical science area at the University of Michigan. She received her PhD in clinical psychology at Yale University with training on the underpinnings of both excess food and alcohol consumption. Dr. Gearhart currently investigates the contribution of reward dysfunction, e.g. craving liking, to eating related problems across the lifespan. She uses a multi-method approach to explore the neurobiological, psychological, and behavioral factors that contribute to problematic eating behavior. Dr. Gearhart also investigates the role of addictive processes in compulsive overeating and is the director of food addiction science and treatment laboratory. It's called the FAST lab. So cool. Her research has received funding from the National Institutes of Health and the American Heart Association. She has published over 100 peer-reviewed articles and her research has been featured on media outlets including the New York Times, ABC News, The Today Show, and Time Magazine. And she has a new website for her lab and you can find it on sites.lsa.umich.edu forward slash fast lab but you can also just look her up dr ashley gearhart gearhart is h-a-r-d-t university of michigan and of course this will all be linked in the show notes but i don't want to take up any more time let's get on with this interview it is so good i hope you love it you're probably gonna have to listen to it more than once because she is full of knowledge and everything she says is is just so great (laughs) so i hope you love it let me know what you think and i hope that this is helpful so let us proceed to this wonderful conversation between myself and dr ashley gearhart Dr. Ashley Gearhart, welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. Oh, I'm, it's absolutely my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. I am super, super excited about this interview. I actually, I have a psychology undergrad degree and I was particularly interested in evolutionary psychology and I love all the thoughts about evolutionary things. And so I feel like food is like perfect for that because it helps me really understand why humans love processed foods. I mean, it just makes so much sense. It's not that there's anything wrong with us. It's that that's how we were designed by nature. But you know, we, before we started recording, 
I asked you if you had thoughts on intuitive eating, health at every size, and we'll get into that, but I just wanted to be completely transparent and tell you, I have a history of disordered eating, but then I found intuitive eating. So I, I've gone from one extreme to another in believing at one point I was part of a 12 step program. So I did believe that I was a food addict. Then I discovered intuitive eating and all of that addictive behavior just went away. And now I can have that food in my house. So then I was just like, well, then it must not exist. I went from one extreme to another, right? I was like, it definitely exists. And like everybody has it, (laughs) you know, kind of extreme thinking to it doesn't even exist. But, you know, as life teaches you things and I've kept an open mind and I've been observing and looking and now I think, well, maybe it's just not the way i didn't understand it correctly and so i want to bring in more people to my podcast to talk about this issue but also so that i can learn how to best help people because ultimately i just want to help people so that there's less suffering there's more joy more Mm well-being and longevity so let's let's set the stage let's create a good foundation here for my listeners how do you define food addiction Yes. Um, so my, I, you know, the way that I define food addiction in my research and the way that it's commonly defined in the field is by using the diagnostic criteria that we use to establish whether someone is just a social drinker or they actually have a clinically significant substance use disorder that's focused on alcohol. Um, It's the same diagnostic criteria we use for tobacco or cocaine or alcohol or heroin. And what we're really looking at, um, because most people use addictive substances at some point in their life, and most people don't get addicted to them. Um, And so it really is a question that you can't just say, oh, are you using an addictive substance? But it's really about what is your relationship to that substance that helps us determine um, whether an addiction has occurred. And so some of the core criteria that are kind of at the heart of things are, you know, a loss of control that, you know, you, you, when you start consuming, you have a really hard time um, stopping yourself. Uh, continued use despite negative consequences. Um, those can be psychological or physical medical health conditions. Uh, really intense and strong cravings. People can endorse signs of withdrawal that when they cut down, they experience you know, irritability, agitation, heightened cravings, a feeling of depression. Um, and that oftentimes people will report that they over time catch themselves eating more and more and more to kind of reach that desired um, feeling of pleasure or that reduction in negative affect. So that's a lot of what we're looking at. It's based on your you know, behavioral relationship with the substance that helps us determine whether someone's a user, maybe a heavy user, or whether they actually are experiencing a, an addictive level of response to the substance that we might want to really consider some clinical care around. Awesome. Yeah, that makes it super clear. And this isn't 100% accepted, right? So there's definitely lots of researchers in the food addiction world, but then there's people that are like, that's not a thing. Why why is that? Absolutely. So it is a very controversial topic. And I would say there's two big domains of controversy. Uh, Interestingly, uh, I would say the area that I get the least 
controversies actually in the field of addiction researchers. I think mm. that over time, identifying what substance or behavior is capable of triggering an addiction, um, we've kind of been through the ringer as a field. You know, we spent three decades arguing about whether cigarettes could be addictive, even though they were killing, you know, 300,000 people a year mm-hmm. and about 80% of people who tried to quit smoking ended up relapsing and, you know, people would have their, their you know, a hole put in their throat to breathe and then they would go and start smoking again. But it didn't look like the stereotype of an addiction, right? You didn't get high. You didn't get intoxicated. It was legal. It was accessible. You could take care of your kid, drive your car. And, and, you know, you weren't really overdosing on it. The withdrawal syndrome didn't look like withdrawal from other drugs. It wasn't like you were going to die from the withdrawal syndrome when you tried to cut down on cigarettes. But it was obviously something that people were losing control over. They couldn't stop themselves, even if they wanted to. They had really intense cravings. They had a strong psychological withdrawal syndrome. And over time, we realized that these processed tobacco products that the industry had really engineered and designed to kind of hook us um, were highly addictive. And when you look at all the addictive substances that are currently recognized out there, cigarettes are the biggest killer, um, actually more than like alcohol and opioids combined. Mm. So it kind of really changed what we thought of when we thought about what are the substances that can trigger an addictive response. And so I think in general, when people think about these, you know, I'll call them highly processed foods that have often been engineered and designed to have a naturally high levels of refined carbohydrates and fat, they're legal. You're not high, you know, you're not overdosing, you know, can you really get addicted to that? And I would say that those, those surface level factors that lead people to um, disregard this are the same surface level factors that led them to disregard cigarette smoking yeah. as an addictive substance. And when you look at the the health consequence of diet-related disease in our society, twice as many people are dying, about 600,000 people are dying of preventable death due to diet-related disease that's associated with overconsumption of these you know, nutritionally poor, highly processed foods. And when we look at our success rates of helping people sustain dietary change, it's actually worse than the outcomes for addiction recovery. Um, So we see about um, 90% of people end up failing to maintain their dietary change in the long term. Uh, So I think those factors to me, I think those surface level factors lead people to kind of disregard it. If they're thinking of like heroin or cocaine, it seems a little silly. But when you think about cigarettes, the parallels become really clear. And I would say the other one is that, you know, we all have to eat, of course. You know, it's not like you can opt out of eating in the way that you can opt out of going to the bar, you can opt out of smoking a cigarette. And so, you know, we need to eat to live. And so where I think it's really key is that, you know, the term food addiction, I actually feel strongly as a misnomer. We used mm-hmm. that term um, when we started this research because we didn't really have evidence at that point about what types of foods were most likely to trigger this process. And we didn't want to get ahead of the science. Um, so we used food. At this point, I, from our research and others, it's pretty clear to me that it's these highly processed foods, particularly with high levels of rapidly absorbed refined carbohydrates um, and and then when supplemented with fat, that seem to be the foods that people are most likely to consume in an addictive way. Mm-hmm. And so if we, you know, waved a magic wand and all the highly processed junk food disappeared from our society, I think many of us, myself included, would feel sad. You know, there's, there's for most of us, there's a place for those of us in our life. Um, but 
we wouldn't die. You know, we, we would be able to eat if the minimally processed, more nutritious foods were still available to us. Um, we would actually thrive and have longer, more um, healthy lives. And so it's, I, you know, there's this kind of controversy right now that maybe it's a behavioral addiction to the act of eating rather than about the food. And I feel strongly that that isn't the case. Um, because of that reason that I mentioned to you that, it, you know, it's, we really don't see people losing control and binging on kale and black beans. Um, when we do animal models, you cannot get rats hooked on their nutritionally complete, you know, minimally processed kind of boring chow, no matter what you do, but you sprinkle a little sugar on it and they're, you know, off to the, off to the races. Um, and so I really think it, the, the food and how we alter and process it is a key driving component to the presence of that addictive behavioral pattern. So there's no broccoli addicted rats in your in <laughs> no. your lab anywhere. <laughs> nope, nope. And yeah, we actually see when we've done work on like what foods are the least addictive for people, it's always like black beans or at the bottom of the list. I think there's probably an aversion if you like black you binge on black beans, you're gonna pay. Uh, so you know, when we look at you know, the foods that even foods people really like, like watermelon and you know, berries, people like them and they enjoy them and they want them, but when it comes to to this kind of compulsive, out-of-control phenotype um, that is associated with, like, you just couldn't stop even if your doctor told you tomorrow that it was, you know, going to take 10 years off your life. You know, we don't, we just don't see that sort of behavior occur with the foods that, you know, are minimally processed that have existed for most of our, our human experience on this planet. Yeah. And I wonder, too, if just because you said that word addiction can be for a lot of people it it brings up this stereotype of a junkie and you know you have this look you know this this idea of what a junkie looks like you're homeless on the street you you don't have any money you know disheveled and so i think that eliminates a lot of things that we know can have an addictive you know component to them just like you said cigarettes like you know and food but that brings me to my next question you know you mentioned Obviously the health problems, I'm a lifestyle medicine physician as well. So that is a very big deal to me is to educate people on how they can be empowered to take charge of their health so that they can have more well-being and longevity. But let's talk about body weight for a second because that's a very touchy subject. Absolutely. Um, and, And one thing that I was surprised about when I've heard you speak before, the association between food addiction and body weight is everybody that might be considered a food addict overweight or obese. Absolutely not. So I mean, we definitely see there's an association. I was just reading um, a study that came out in addiction with a really beautiful large sample um, that found like, yeah, the likelihood of food addiction um, is increased for individuals have overweight and obesity. But even in the context of obesity, it's only at 30%. So, you know, 70% of individuals with a higher body mass index are not necessarily meeting this food addiction criteria. And similarly, you know, we are seeing individuals who are normal weight or even underweight um, that are endorsing this relationship with food that meets those core diagnostic criteria for addiction. Is that meaningful? Well, the study that I'm just reading finds that um, this food addiction behavioral phenotype is much more strongly associated with poor quality of life across the board, physical, social, mental, psychological, than the size of your body. And I'm a big proponent that you cannot look at someone's 
body size and assume you know anything about their relationship with food. It, it, it's not a one-to-one basis. And for me, it was part of actually one of the motivators of doing this work was that before I developed the Yale Food Addiction Scale, obesity was kind of being used as this proxy for um, somebody who was addicted to these foods. And I felt like that was a big mistake, both both assuming you knew someone's relationship with food without assessing it, and also assuming that if someone had a normal body mass index, that you then assumed they had a healthy relationship with food and there weren't any struggles there. And so that's why I really turned to understanding those behavioral indicators that we use for every other addictive substance to really quantify um, this, you know, compulsive addictive relationship with these foods and not to rely on, you know, body size as a proxy. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much for giving us that information. And I think that just reaffirms more and more that we cannot judge a book by its cover, especially in medicine. I know I'm a physician. There is a lot of weight bias. There's yes, a lot of assumptions, so. discrimination based on that. And basically what you're saying is the majority of people that might be classified as overweight actually don't meet criteria You've got for it. food addiction. Yes. So we can't just assume that if you're overweight, it's because you're a food addict. (laughs) That's a hundred percent true. That's absolutely true. Like you cannot assume from someone's body shape, um, what they're, whether they have an addiction to food in any capacity. You know, I do, I always try and really make a distinguishing factor for me. It's really key between a specific person and saying like, are you demonstrating um, signs of addiction to a clinical level in your own life that we might say, okay, there's an addiction here and we want a kind of treatment plan for you and think about how might we tailor interventions to target those addictive mechanisms in a way that's going to help you succeed. And I think this is important because we're finding that um, in some large weight loss treatment trials, individuals who meet the food addiction criteria are the most likely to drop out and the most likely that if they stay in the treatment to actually gain weight rather than lose it in the course of the trial. Mm. So if you have a higher body weight and it is, and you make a personal choice that you would like to lose the weight, which is not for anyone, that's not a universal necessity. This is an individual and personalized choice. And you are showing this addictive response to these foods and you go to the traditional, you know, calories in, calories out, eat this, eat not that. And there's no consideration of that addictive, the reward pull, the emotional aspects of things, the cravings, the triggers, you know, those treatments are not working well for anybody and they might not be working particularly well for you. And so I think that's important for kind of tailoring treatment. On the other end, when I think of, if we think about the food and don't pay as much attention to, you know, are you addicted or not? But if we think of these highly processed foods have this addictive pull, like I mentioned, we know most people who use an addictive substance don't get addicted, even with cocaine, right? It's about like one in five actually get addicted. You know, most people don't. Now, does that mean that it's risk-free? It doesn't because most of us who drink something like alcohol, even though only about 12% of people are going to actually have an alcohol use disorder, when you're in an environment where alcohol is cheap and legal and easily accessible and heavily marketed and a key part of the social fabric, even people who aren't 
showing a full-blown addiction are prone to overuse it Mm -hmm. and to experience enough of an addictive pull that it can start to negatively impact their physical health and their mental well-being. Um, I'm on a college campus, so like, you know, I see a lot of my students coming in and they're hungover or they're depressed or they're missing class. And I I don't think it's because they're necessarily addicted to alcohol, but the environment is so toxic around alcohol that it drives even someone who isn't at that clinical level to experience problems. When I think of this food environment, I think that the foods that I see as being most addictive are so dominant in our food supply, so accessible, so heavily advertised, um, so a huge part of our social fabric that even if you don't have a full-blown addiction, but you're feeling enough of a pull from these foods to overeat, you know, 300, 400 calories more a day than you need to thrive, um, that's really problematic. And so I think a lot about the environmental pressures of addictive substances and how they can lead to overconsumption on a broad scale, even for people who aren't full-blown clinically addicted, but enough that it's impacting the quality of their life. Yes. Oh, I love that so much. It's a spectrum, right? Because just the difference between disordered eating and an eating disorder. I feel like I was a disordered eater for decades and it was causing Mm -hmm. me massive emotional pain. And, but I did not meet criteria for a full blown eating disorder. But even if I didn't, the issues were enough that getting help is going to improve my quality of life. So some of it is just, you know, the scientific, we have to sometimes put criteria, we have to be able to count things and how many do you have, you know, but at the end of the day, what you're saying is we really have to tune into how much is it affecting you? And do you feel like you're living up to your potential? Do you feel like you're having the joy that you want in your life? Or is this holding you back and limiting you? Absolutely. That's absolutely true. Yes. You you put that very nicely. So I have a question because like I said, I, I was in a 12 step program for a while, about a year. And I just wonder what your thoughts are on the label, (laughs) because we talked about before how this can be for some people kind of triggering and kind of like, ugh, no, that's just yucky. It just makes me think of a junkie or whatever. Do you think it is helpful for some people to label themselves as addicts? Do you think for some people it could be harmful? What are your thoughts? Absolutely. So I think there's a, a no, there's, there's nothing that in the field of addiction, that's one size fits all it, it, it all. And we even see this with something like alcohol, um, where for some people, you know, saying I have an addiction to alcohol and it is a disease and it is never getting better. And I need to kind of, um, organize my life around this addictive label is really helpful for them and, and taking it seriously and, prioritizing it and helping them um, seek professional help. For other people, we find that that label is really harmful and it it turns them off. and, And so what I've seen in the addiction field that I really like, and I hope we model in the realm of these foods, is that that there's options out there that are on multiple comfort levels. So we have these harm reduction approaches um, in alcohol use disorder that are supported by science where you don't have to label yourself an addict and you don't have to say, I'm never drinking alcohol ever again. And that for some people, especially who have a more mild or moderate um, experience of, you know, problems with alcohol, we're able to work with them to say, how, let's change your relationship with alcohol. How do we reduce the harm? What are skills and strategies and safe places for you um, to learn to use in a way where this is maybe still a part of your life, but it isn't taking it over. And mm-hmm. part of that is saying that there's 
also a spectrum of risk of the substances, right? Saying, let's have you drink Bacardi 151 in a safe manner is a much harder ask than like a glass of, of wine that's on the lower alcohol side. And so we might say, yeah, for you drinking, you might have to give up liquor. It's just, it's too risky. It's too addictive, but perhaps you can learn, um, socially and safe ways to consume a glass of wine with dinner or a beer every now and then. Um, you know, that was very controversial and a big fight in the field of addiction, but we have now, it's now like kind of a standard empirically supported treatment. I would say in the realm of addictive eating and with these foods, we, the, the treatment space hasn't been filled out as much. And so there's the 12 step approach of kind of abstinence only. I am an addict. And I do talk to people where they say, this is the only thing that's ever worked for me. And this label um, really helped me recover. And I tried everything else under the sun. For other people, that is not. And, and, and unfortunately, we don't have enough science necessarily around, you know, what are the potential pros and cons of a 12-step program? And for whom is it helpful? And for whom is it maybe damaging? Mm. But what I'm hoping in my own career to do is to kind of broaden out that space where there's an opportunity for some of those kind of harm reduction sort of approaches that does acknowledge that, you know, not all foods are created equal, I would say, in their risk potential, that there's a spectrum of risk, and that for each person, it's somewhat individualized, um, and that we can acknowledge the role of the food while also acknowledging what you need as a person and what your specific goals are, and that absolutely does not need to require abstaining from all, you know, processy or sugar foods, that for many people, that's probably um, a step too far. Yes. Oh, I love that. You know, that openness to be able to individualize based mm -hmm. upon your history, your genetics, your personality, and maybe even just presenting things in a way to people that let's try it this way and see how it yeah. works for you. What imagine yourself thinking of yourself as an addict. How does that feel? Does that make Absolutely. you feel like worse about yourself or does that make you feel safe and confident, you know? And so yeah. I, I think being able to have this openness that it is not one size fits all and that some things might help some people and maybe not help some people as much, I think is a right step in the direction where we can start helping more people overall. And now for a very important message. Hey, veggie lover, if you are looking for free resources to guide you on your plant-based and healthy living journey, go to dryami.com forward slash free for tons of free downloadable PDFs. Hundreds of people have taken advantage of my tips to help them reduce meat and dairy consumption, navigate eating out, and build satisfying plant-based meals. Download one or download them all. And don't forget to share with friends and family. DrYami.com forward slash free. And now back to the episode. I agree. And I think, you know, again, I, I try and separate a little bit out for the specific person and focusing on the substance, which in this mm -hmm. case to me are these highly processed foods. Because, you know, we talk a lot about what's the potential risk of labeling these foods as addictive. Um, you know, for some people, is it going to make them feel worse? Um, so far, the science is not supporting the idea that saying that um, there's an addiction to these foods actually uh, – there's some evidence that it reduces stigma, although it's the, the literature is mixed, but in general, it doesn't seem to increase stigma towards individuals with higher body weight. So that was a big relief for me in doing this science. I did not want to increase stigma. And thus far, the science seems to suggest that it doesn't. Um, but that 
I think there's a big risk of if these foods are addictive and there's a trillion dollar industry that is benefiting from them and creating them and marketing and engineering them. And we're saying, oh no, this food isn't addictive. You know, it's just a function of willpower, trying hard enough, white knuckling it. You know, we were like that with tobacco for a very long time. Oh no, cigarettes aren't addictive. It's just a bad habit. People just need to try harder. And what that did was it really let the industry have a very big pass for a very long time to continue really ethically questionable practices um, that hooked, you know, a new generation of smokers. And, and people weren't fully informed about the risk they were taking when they were smoking a cigarette because they thought, oh, I can stop it anytime. This isn't an an addiction. And so I think there's some big risks um, if these foods do meet the scientific consensus for addiction, which I think that evidence is growing. If we ignore that, um, you know, I think it does just suggest to people, well, why aren't I able to just get a handle on this? In the same way people ask, why can't I just quit smoking when I tried? And I think this is particularly relevant for two reasons. One is the um, intense marketing towards children and adolescents Mm -hmm. that the food industry does, um, and in ways that it's hard for parents to monitor, like on advert gaming and social media, Um, and also um, social justice issues that if you are... um, of a lower income bracket in the United States, um, in many ways, the only source of calories that are accessible and um, uh, economically available to you are from these foods that we think may be able to trigger addictive processes in your psyche and in your brain. And there's a fundamental social justice issue, I think, if um, you know individuals just due to uh, having less power in our society do not have equal access to nutritious options and are being targeted um, by industries that hook them and make money off them. Oh my goodness, so much to unpack there. I I recently read Hooked by Michael Moss. I'm sure you've read it. And he goes through some cases in there. And but it just reminds me of that, you know, a lot of people talk about gaslighting these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you think of this this industry creating foods that make it really hard for people to stop eating on purpose so that people buy them. And then when people make criticism about the food, they're like, oh no, you should be able to include this as part of any moderate lifestyle. You can stop any time. And if you can't, it's your fault. They put the blame on the individual. So then that means that the person that can't stop eating these things, there's something wrong with them personally. It's not the food. That's exactly right. And that's, I mean, if you watch the documentary on the Sackler family with um, opioids and, you know, they, they did that same playbook. Like they, they pushed their opioid medications out. They advertised it aggressively. They didn't do appropriate safety monitoring. And when it became clear that people were becoming addicted and it was driving the current opioid epidemic, Um, you know, they very intentionally said, well, we're just going to label anybody who's struggling as, uh, you know, a criminal and a bad person. Mm -hmm. And they're, you know, it's not our fault for creating this product and pushing it and not doing safety testing. It's just these bad people who don't have personal responsibility. And of course, like we all have a role to play in our own life to promote our health, but companies should not be making billions and trillions of dollars off of making it harder for us to live a healthy, high quality life. 
Yeah. Oh, oh, that's that's just so intense. Well, let me tell you a little story that I think is yeah. super interesting. Uh, my husband and I got the opportunity to go to the Greek islands a couple of years ago oh, to lovely. celebrate our 40th birthdays. It was really fantastic. We loved it so much. One evening, we were having dinner, this little cafe with the owner was the chef and everything. It was darling. And the food in Greece is just, I'm just going to not even exaggerate here. It's amazing. Okay. Everything is amazing. And my husband and I are foodies. So we would every dinner just like try to eat as much as possible because we're also American, right? Which yes, is kind of leading me into this question. But we were going through this menu and we're ordering all this stuff. It's just two people. And the owner's taking our order and he stops us. He's like, that's enough. You're on holiday. You don't want to ruin your holiday. Like in his mind, he's like overeating is is going to make you feel bad why are you ordering yeah. so much food and i have never forgotten that story because a lot of people in greece are are lean and active and they seem to be really enjoying their life but maybe it's just because i was on vacation who knows <laughs> but i feel in the united states is the opposite like in the united states is how much can we eat how much can we put on our plate overeating is celebrated it's part of like every sporting event everything everything so I know that the processed food industry is permeating the entire globe now, and so it's everywhere, but how much do you think some of these eating behaviors and some of these habits that we start from a young age are culturally yeah. based? Huge. I actually just had this conversation with my lab today um, where we were talking about, you know, one of the things that is beneficial in many countries like Italy or Greece where like, you know, alcohol consuming, you know, a, a good drink, uh, you know, a nice glass of red wine or something is, is a big part of the culture. It's not that they're, they're countries that typically have low addiction rates and um, low, lower obesity rates. But it's not like they're teetotalers who never drink or don't appreciate wine. Um, but there's some pretty noticeable cultural bounds, um, at least historically, around when it is appropriate and not appropriate to consume the addictive substance. And, and so it's often a special occasion, you know, something that you do socially with others, that there are certain times or periods that you consume it. And this is actually a very effective cultural gatekeeping mm -hmm. to reduce the the harms of an addictive substance. It both kind of can help us maybe catch people earlier who start deviating from those norms to know that maybe the, the substance is starting to hook them. But in general, you know, willpower actually kind of sucks. Our willpower is not very strong. And, and if you're actively trying to prevent yourself from engaging in something that's tempting, that burns out. Yes. But there's something about this kind of cultural gatekeeping that kind of help like turns off the temptation drive for you. So like I have a bottle of red wine on my kitchen counter right now. And that at 10 a.m., even if I'm stressed, even if I had a really bad day, it doesn't sound in any way appealing to me because there's cultural bounds that like you only drink at certain times of day and in certain settings after 5 p.m. Now, once it's like 5.30 and I'm stressed out, I've had a hard day and I'm cooking dinner, the red wine looks real good. The red wine itself hasn't changed, right? But the cultural and cued situation around the wine has, drank, has changed. When I look at what's happened to our food environment, especially in America, all the cultural mores are yeah. off, right? It's not like you have, um, you know, a dessert, you only have a nice, you know, 
piece of dessert, uh, you know, at the end of a meal that's kind of high quality and a small portion size. Uh, we're having cake for breakfast. We're having, you know, like there's more icing and or more sugar in many of those like kitty cereals than there are in a piece of cake. And, you know, there's, we're kind of off to the races. You eat in your car, you eat at your office, you eat at 11 o'clock at night, you eat by yourself. When we look at this addictive eating behavior, it's not people necessarily often sitting down in a mindful way with like a good meal with people they care about and savoring the food. It's this kind of shoveling the food as rapidly as possible into their mouth alone late at night and this kind of a, when they're bored and they're sad and they're stressed, mm -hmm. right? And so one of the things I think about again is like, so why? Why did that suddenly happen? right? Like we used to have a, a more restrained culture around these sort of foods and when we eat them. And it, it really, it's, it's been a very successful effect of the food industry. Again, not to always come back to them, but marketing. through their marketing and through the changes of, you know, a third meal, midnight snack, uh, drinking soda all day, every day, constantly dosing yourself with a big gulp has become socially acceptable and not seen as something that's outside of cultural norms. And without that cultural gatekeeping, um, it's even more tempting and challenging for us to resist the pull and allure of these foods. Yeah, and, and, and we're seeing, unfortunately, places like Greece and France that have had very strong food cultures as our kind of Americanized you know, food industries have gotten a stronger and stronger foothold there. We're seeing much of their food culture that's protective start to erode with the introduction of our our westernized, you know, Americanized food industry. So we're mm -hmm. exporting this around the globe, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like in the United States, because it, food and eating has become such a dominant part of our every second life, yeah. is that now you're almost peer pressured to engage in it. So if Certainly. you go to a party and you don't eat something, it's like, why not? Because when I work with coaching clients as well, and that's one of the biggest obstacles yes, is being, being singled out. Why aren't you eating the cake? Why aren't 100%. you joining us in this indulgence? And, but the indulgences are every single day. Yeah. You know, it's like, there's not just like a season or a holiday. It's an everyday event now. And that makes it really difficult for some people. And we're starting to also see this idea that like, that, you know, the more you're eating this stuff, the more tolerant you get to it, right? It doesn't give you the same reward hit yeah. as it did if it was an occasional indulgence as if you're doing it every single day. I mean, I really think we have to ask ourselves, like the, the Coca-Cola bottle that is now like a single serve serving size for one person that you get, you know, at the gas station when you check out. If you look at old Coca-Cola advertisements, that was the size that was sold as a family-sized bottle uh, for the whole family. It's like, why have our portion sizes gotten so incredibly out of control? I think in part, it's that like we're consuming it so frequently, so regularly, and that our brain begins to adapt yes. to that. And that, that same amount of Coca-Cola doesn't give you the same reward hit that it used to. And so you either need a substance that's more intensely rewarding or a larger portion size in the same way we see with alcohol that people will go from, you know, a lower alcohol beer to a higher alcohol beer and then drink more and more of it because it's just not doing it the way that it once was. There's evidence that um, these foods, uh, you know, go through the same process. And so it leaves us in this feeling of kind of needing more and more and more to kind of get that reward fix, especially if we're comparing it 
get to, you know, maybe early memories of the first time we had a cupcake or, you know, a soda and it was so salient. So we go with this strong expectation. We see this in our research that people who have more addictive eating have these really high, very positive expectancies of how about how much joy and how much desire and how wonderful it's going to be to get these foods. But when they actually eat it, it doesn't live up to the expectation. So you're kind of chasing that high and you're consuming more and more and more. And we see that, again, people who have this more addictive eating pattern have incredibly negative expectations about healthy food. They really expect that they're going to feel disappointed and deprived and it isn't going to be really rewarding. But in reality, they might actually feel better in a more sustained way if they do start to eat more of those minimally processed foods. But those expectations that, again, have been driven in large part by our marketing environment um, that, you know, Snickers and Coca-Cola are going to give you pleasure and, you know, a really vegetable forward dish is not, um, you know, really can be an obstacle for people trying to test that in their own lives and reality testing and say, well, is that really true for me anymore or ever? Wow. Wow. That's just fascinating. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. It almost to me, like the, the phrase that just popped in my mind is dopamine in printing. Like thinking yeah. of these memories from childhood, the first time you ever tasted something and everything yeah. just lit up and exploded. You're like, yes, I'm going to keep seeking this. And then that, totally. that phrase that they say, chasing the dragon, you know, in the addiction yes, community is totally. you can never quite get there, but you try, you're trying that dopamine telling you, come on, you got to try to get it. So you're just going to get more and more and more, but you're never, it's almost like that dopamine and printing, the memory is much larger than anything you can ever reproduce again, you know? Yeah. So yes, interesting. It's so true. And just to think about like how powerful, you know, sugar is and like, you know, like ultra processed foods account for 90% of the added sugar in our diet. Like Mm -hmm. us actually adding sugar at home is like pretty not, not nearly as much as like the foods that we're buying and the convenient foods that like dominate our environment. If you look at animals and you try and say, okay, you have a choice between cocaine and sugar over 70% of the time, the animals will choose the sugar. It just like, it's, extremely hard to get them. You have to, even if you super manipulate and you do all these things to try and reduce the impact of the sugar, still about half the animals will still choose the sugar over the cocaine, even if you try and minimize the rewarding impact of the, of the sugar. And so, you know, the foods in our environment are actually working with our biology. We're designed and engineered from our evolutionary drive to make sure we're getting enough calories to want and desire and need these foods. You know, we don't have any sort of existing internal system to make sure we're getting enough cocaine, right? So cocaine and heroin and nicotine, they have to be 
so powerful that they can start to hijack those like reward and motivational drive systems to try and move you towards you know those substances. In contrast, you really don't have to start futzing with our food environment too much and how rewarding and reinforcing it is by adding you know refined carbohydrates and fats and flavor enhancers to start to see those reward and motivation systems mm-hmm. go awry and to make it challenging um, to kind of you know, get them back on track because you're working with biology that has very weak breaks around high calorie foods. Yeah. For a good reason for survival, right? I mean, it's, it's a really good reason, which is when I, when I, yeah, when I change my mindset about, you know, it's not that there's something inherently wrong with me. It's that I'm a very good survivor, actually. That's, <laughs> that's why oh, I that's love exactly these exactly what I was going to say. That's, I always <laughs> tell people that. It's like the same risk factors that now set people up to suffer in this environment would have been beneficial and helped you survive and pass on your genes for the vast, vast majority of human existence. It's not that there's something wrong with you. It's that the food environment has changed in a way that now turns your strengths into, you know, potential weaknesses. Yeah. And I just was going to add from my experience as a physician and working with clients, the good news is that even though we can neuroadapt to these higher and higher levels of these hyper-processed foods, when we stop consuming them, we can yeah. downregulate those receptors and we can neuroadapt back to these whole natural foods. And you get you're to right. one point where you're enjoying those foods just as much without the rotten side effects of some of these hyper processed foods, which so that it's it the hope is not lost. <laughs> we can do that, which our that. brain is so incredible that it can do that. Absolutely. It's not your, your biology at this moment is not uh, written in stone that there's, you know, a lot that you can do to help neuroadapt. Now, I always try and not dump it. It's a really hard journey. And, and that I see a lot of people white knuckling it on their own, and then really beating themselves up that it's not working. And it's, you know, I, in many ways, and Michael Moss talks about this in his book, harder to change this addictive pull to food, given our environment. Nobody's bringing in little bottles of wine that you have to resist at 7 a.m. in a morning meeting where you're already tired and cranky, right? But the likelihood that there's going to be donuts Donuts. or cookies (laughs) or bagels or things that are going to give you this like quick dopamine rush, you know, with the food world, it's very likely you're going to see this. And so, um, you know, be compassionate with yourself and seek out, you know, support from people that are going to help you, you know, make this journey that's really worth it to improve the quality yeah. of your life, but it is, it is not an easy one. So yeah, be compassionate with yourself. Yeah. Oh, that's so, such important information. Okay. Let's switch gears just a little bit. Um, another quick story. Yesterday, my accountant emailed me a figure that I was my taxes for my business taxes. It was double what I expected. I was quite displeased (laughs) (laughs) to the point where I wanted to cry and I wanted to literally dive headfirst into chocolate cake. Like that's really what I wanted. I'm just like, I want to eat over this so bad. Turns out he miscommunicated and it was fine, much less than I oh, expected gosh, to. So oh, glad. so the the, the moral of the story is, of course, yeah. I didn't dive headfirst into chocolate. Yeah. I didn't have any available with me. I was at work and I don't keep food there besides my lunchbox, which is all health promoting foods. Um, yeah. But it, it just highlights to me that I definitely have, and I've even had genetic testing for this. I don't know what gene it is, but it says I'm more likely to be an emotional eater. 
mm-hmm. and an overeater. So can you help describe a little bit of this difference between this food addiction, the criteria for food yeah. addiction, overeating, emotional eating, but also how mood disorders can have an eating component. Absolutely. So depression, one of the things there is that you can overeat, undereat. So totally. I think sometimes also at the beginning, I got these confused and thought it was all the same thing, but it's not. So can you tease it's out a little not. bit the difference? Absolutely. So I, I'm going to go back to alcohol. I hope you don't mind because no, I always not. use like other addictive substances to give a vibe. You know, there is a tendency to overdrink, right? There's, uh, which I think of as the parallel to overeat. And so lots of people will drink too much on a given night, have more than the one glass of wine that's good, you know, that's health, that is suggested for health promoting benefits or go out with some friends and, you know, tie one on and have a hangover. And that, you know, that is an act of over drinking. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have an addiction. Now, people who do have an addiction are chronically over drinking, right? It's like a much more prevalent, standard, common part of their day that's occurring, even if there's really significant um, consequences. You're getting DUIs, your you know, partner's very mad at you, you're, you're not functioning at work, and you're still continuing continuing to overdrink on a regular basis. So uh, all all addicts are kind of overconsuming. All people with addictions are overconsuming, but not all people who overconsume have an addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of going along that spectrum more, similarly, like that emotionally triggered use, a lot of people will have a bad day and open, get a beer, get a glass of wine as a way to kind of come down or deal with some negative emotion. Um, Again, not everybody who does that has an addiction um, at all, but most people who have an addictions um, that one of the biggest driving factors is that desire to cope, especially with negative affect. Um, And so again, it's just because you're using um, in response to emotions, it doesn't mean that you have an addiction, but if you have an addiction, you're likely to probably doing that um, very, very regularly. Mm -hmm. Now we do see that um, one of the probably most predictive precursors across the board for addictions is that desire to use to cope. And so I would say if someone is noticing that they are regular using these foods or alcohol or things to cope, and that's their main coping strategy, you are at heightened risk. It doesn't mean you have an addiction yet, but like that is one of the major factors that seems to discriminate people who are at risk for an addiction versus those who are not. So monitoring that can be really key. Um, and that idea of like the idea of depression or other mood disorders, you know, we see that um, the co-occurrence of depression and anxiety disorders and mood disorders with addictions is extremely high. Mm. Um, and you know, we don't know, not everyone who has a mood disorder has an addiction and not everyone who has an addiction has a mood disorder. But the co-occurrence, um, I don't want to throw out a specific number because I, I don't want to miss um, communicate the exact prevalence, but it is exceptionally high. It's, it's, it's more, it's, it's more likely to occur than not to occur, you know, that you're going to often have, um, you know, some sort of co-occurring kind of mood disorder or other post-traumatic stress trauma is also something that's exceptionally highly co-occurring with addictive disorders. We also see that this is true in the context of food addiction, that, um, depressive disorder, depression disorders, post-traumatic stress disorders, um, you know, um, those kind of Uh, mood and emotion related disorders are very highly co-occurring with um, food addiction. And so oftentimes you'll want to have a treatment provider 
who is considering both, you know, considering the, the full complex profile of what you might be dealing with and not, you know, just focusing on the mood disorder or just focusing on the addiction because they can really feed each other in ways that can be damaging. The addictive substance um, or behavior can make the depression worse. The depression sets you up to be more vulnerable to using the addictive substance to cope and they can feed on each other. And so you really want to kind of hold both. And now for a very important message. Hey mama, if you are feeling frustrated about mealtime battles, worried that your child isn't eating enough or eating enough vegetables, afraid that your child is going to get some awful deficiency or disease because of the lack of diversity in their diet, I wrote a book that might be for you. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy is available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Did you know that most children are born with the innate ability to eat the appropriate amount of food to satisfy their hunger and support appropriate growth? Despite this, parents are still anxious and confused about how much and what to feed their children. In addition, many children are labeled as picky eaters or develop behaviors such as hiding and sneaking food. There's also a growing epidemic of dieting behaviors and eating disorders beginning at alarmingly young ages. In my book, you'll learn the five pillars of healthy eating, how to apply intuitive eating through all the stages of development, lifestyle habits that support healthy eating and body image, troubleshooting and problem solving for picky eaters, overeating and dieting behaviors, how to create and foster a healthy body image in your children, how exploring your own body image and relationship with food will help raise an intuitive eater, and what foods to offer your child at different stages of development. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy, available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Are you ready for a fresh approach to feeding your child? For more information, visit dryami.com forward slash book. And now back to the episode. Yes. Thank you for teasing that out. But it sounds like basically it's complicated. The human brain is complex. (laughs) Very, very true. And, you know, kind of going back to your points, you know, the, the, we get kind of obsessed with buckets and labels. And I, you know, I think there's important reasons for doing that to kind of have a better understanding of what's going on. But, you know, I really like what you've talked about of like, you not so much having to obsess over, you know, am I an addict or not, or am I an emotional leader, but not an addict? What are you thriving? You know, what's getting in the way of your quality of life and what is beneficial for you personally to help you get to the other side is much more important than having some objectively correct label because, you know, it, 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 like you said, it's complex. Yeah. And I think that's what makes it hard sometimes to read the research that's animal based, you know, because as a human, we have so much pain, but it's not a physical pain. It's this emotional pain, like this consequence that happened. You owe double what you think you owe on taxes only happened in my brain. Like nothing physically changed in my life. It was like literally one line in the email and it created this emotional chaos. Like, oh my gosh, panic, you know, sadness. And and I felt like I needed to self-soothe, but 
Is there like some sort of animal model that's analogous? Like, have they done studies? Yeah. I hate this because, you know, I'm also vegan. So I hate thinking yeah. of hurting poor animals. But is yeah. there a way to study this in animals? Yeah, there is, you know, there, they do do like intermittent stress exposure. Um, it, there are approaches in animals to heighten, you know, their stress, unfortunately, and their experience of kind of low mood. And, you know, one of the most effective ways that, you know, again, is kind of mimic some of the trauma that we experience as humans is of, um, you know, the pups being removed from their moms, mm-hmm. um, uh, on an earlier developmentally level. And so, you know, when I see a lot of evidence of neglect or trauma or emotional abuse kind of setting um, people up for an addiction, you know, when we look at those animal models, we do see that it sets up stress systems and reward systems in a way that really uh, can make you more vulnerable to the addictive nature of you know, other substances and of food. Um, it's, again, like a really parallel mechanism. And in some ways, you know, when I look at these animal models and I see how incredibly powerful the addictive capacity is for these foods for an animal who in many ways has a life that's less complex, you know, yes. and, and isn't ruminating per se on things and isn't um, subjected to much of the stigma and trauma and things that's part of the human experience. It sets me up how even more vulnerable we are as humans in many ways to the addictive pull of these foods. Yes. Oh, so good. So good. Okay. Let's move on to talking about intuitive eating and uh, health at every size. So like I said before, my journey has been one where I've experienced some of this intensity. I did that food addiction scale at the height of my restriction and what I was doing. And I was like full blown, you know, but then I discovered intuitive eating and all of that seemed to change dramatically. So what research has been done on using these intuitive eating principles or mindfulness, which kind of came up a little bit earlier, to help with food addiction? Do you think it can be helpful? Yeah. What's the relationship there as far as where, how you understand it currently? Absolutely. So I would say it's a huge area where there's more research that needs to be done. I would say in in a whole, there's been kind of an adversarial relationship between um, kind of the uh, addiction perspective and the intuitive eating perspective um, and the health at any size perspective in a way that I I really don't feel um, necessarily needs to be there. I, I, some more conversation and crosstalk rather than kind of avoidance and kind of throwing bombs at each other is probably really what's warranted. And, you know, again, I think going back to kind of starting with the health at any size movement is again, part of what motivated me to do this scale was to say, I want to understand the relationship with food rather than using body size as a proxy for a healthy relationship with food or an unhealthy relationship with food. And in general, you know, I do want there to be an environment where people are able to achieve, um, you know, a size and a, a body shape that works for them and is their personally fits in their lifestyle. Um, and I don't want there to be an environment that has a tendency to drive, um, you know, most of us towards a higher body size just by going with the flow of a food environment that's pushing you know, kind of quick hits of pleasure through food um, in a way that can set us up to be at higher risk, even though we never intended to be so and that we're not informed. So I, you know, I'm a big fan of trying to reduce weight stigma of people, you know, feeling 
the, you know, we, that there is no one right way to have a certain body weight or to that it reflects a certain relationship with food. And so like, I don't think this is like, yes, we need to, everyone needs a smaller body size. This is what we should be aiming for is not a goal of mine at all. Mm-hmm. When it comes to the intuitive eating, you know, there's so much about the intuitive eating that I really like about, you know, really evaluating one's relationship with food and what's triggering the desire for the food right now. Is it a feeling of, you know, actually having hunger and, and and not feeling satiated and being in touch with the drivers of emotion and pressure and kind of letting go of some of those like really um, black and white ideals and some of the perfectionistic tendencies that our society puts around us around our body. I think my biggest concern around where intuitive eating and the addiction model needs to talk to each other a little bit is that you know there's evidence that it's much harder to intuitively eat these engineered foods that are addictive. And so let me give you a couple pieces of evidence for me that makes me think that this is tricky and that it would be helpful if we could acknowledge that the food itself can make it challenging to eat intuitively and that um, that informing people of this may help them be able to guide themselves more about making choices that are mindful and purposeful and fit with their goals. Um, so in my lab, I have this simulated fast food restaurant lab and it smells like French fries and it looks like a fast food restaurant and it has all those cues. And we randomly assign people to come into our fast food restaurant or kind of a neutral setting that isn't super cued and triggering. And as soon as people walk into our restaurant, even though they've just been randomly assigned to it, they'll all of a sudden say, I am really hungry. I need to, I need to eat. I'm hungry. My stomach is rumbling, right? And if I assigned that same person into a room that wasn't cute and triggering, they would say, I'm not that hungry. And so there is, we know when you're in those really rich, cued environments, it can start to trigger actually biologically those gut hormones that mm-hmm. tell you I'm hungry. And so it can be really hard, I think, to dissociate between a hedonic hunger um, that is masquerading as a physical hunger um, from an actual, I am calorically deprived and I need to fuel myself in in a way that's meaningful. So I think that's really hard for people to distinguish because they are biologically intertwined. They aren't two separate systems. Then there's another study that came out recently that just knocked my socks off. Um, Kevin Hall, who's at the National Institute of Health, brought people in. These aren't food addicts. These are just kind of your average, you know, people in America. And he had them live at the National Institute of Health for a month. And for two weeks, they had access to all minimally processed foods, all their foods. It was convenient. It was inexpensive, right? They they could eat whenever they felt like it, stopped whenever they felt like it, really, you know, listened to their signals. And then for two weeks, he created a food environment that was all ultra processed food. Same amount of calories were available, same macronutrients, people was convenient. It was, you know, free. People could just tell them when they wanted to eat and just listen to their signals about when they felt they wanted to eat and when they wanted to stop. Same exact people. When they were in the ultra processed food environment, they ate 500 more calories a day than they did in the minimally processed. They didn't report that they felt more hungry when they were eating the 500 calories more a day. It was just kind of the food itself was like kind of driving forward this kind of rapid eating and this, you know, greater caloric intake. They were gaining weight more rapidly. Um, and 
that ultra-processed food environment in a way that they weren't aware of. And then when they looked at what was going on in their gut signaling for the signals that tell you whether you're hungry or whether you're full, being exposed to that ultra-processed food environment for just two weeks started to mess up those signals in a way that wouldn't accurately signal to your body whether you were actually full or whether you were actually hungry. Those signals of, of telling you that you could rely on to intuitively, you know, try and understand, am I hungry or am I full? We're getting messed up. And so I think that learning your signals about hunger and satiety and when it's kind of boredom or emotion or drive and you know, all those things are really key. But I also don't want to underplay to people how challenging it is at, if you know your diet is dominated and we know our environment is dominated in these evolutionarily novel you know industry products that start to um, you know override and mess up our ability to really tap into our hunger and satiety signals and so I think that the diet quality can really aid us in being able to rely more successfully on those intuitive signals to help us eat in a way that promotes sanity and not you know leads us to feel out of control of our eating so again it's kind of going back to that complexity um, I feel like there's something that the, the food itself brings to the table that can either support or make it more challenging to rely on intuitive eating principles. Yeah. So that's my thought process on it and how they can work together. But I'm very open to kind of hearing, you know, kind of feedback about what I might be missing. Yeah, no, I I love that you brought that up. And I love that study you're talking about. I printed the yeah, whole thing I'm out. Obsessed with it. It um, has detailed pictures of the foods and everything and i think it's a brilliant study i just i love how it was ad libitum too like they weren't restricting anybody's portions and they really tried to equalize the macronutrients like they were actually having to add fiber to the processed food which is so sad (laughs) but even despite having to add the fiber the people that were eating the processed foods we're just eating more without feeling like they were eating more, yeah, which in some exactly. ways is is like you're missing out because if you yes, if totally. you're eating the the minimally processed and whole foods, you get to eat less calories and feel more full and satisfied, yeah. which is an advantage. Yes. And then when you're talking about your lab, I immediately thought of the example I put in my book, which I think everybody can relate to this yeah. movie theaters. Oh gosh. As yeah. soon as you walk in, I mean like you just want some popcorn. Like and your mouth starts watering. Yeah. And, and your body is physiologically like, yeah. Yes, give me some that. of that. I mean it's it smells yeah. so good, it tastes so good. And I've had to learn over time because it does not make me feel good at all. Like I no. do not have a yeah. good reaction to it. And so I have to like talk myself through it. Like you I know you want it, but you're gonna feel horrible afterwards. Of course I sneak in my own, you know, stuff that I can munch on to help. But that's an example of that cephalic phase response. Like your body's like, oh no, we're ready to eat now, girl. I don't care if you just had a five course gourmet meal, you're eating this popcorn. Addictive substances do that same thing in a way that's really interesting is that the cues in the environment where you've used alcohol or cocaine, like your body's trying to keep equilibrium. It it finds uh, huge hits of sugar or fats or all those sorts of things overwhelming. And so if you, you know, just like you walk in the movie theater and your body's already preparing for it and your blood sugar's changing and all sorts of things are changing to say, all right, hook me up, you know, get my fix. 
you know, we see that same thing happens that it, it triggers people to use is that if you walk into a setting where you've used cocaine a lot, your body before you've used the cocaine starts doing the opposite action of the cocaine to try and protect you. And so if you don't take the cocaine, you feel kind of crappy, you know? And so we're seeing these similar kind of processes happening where the cues and the context in the environment are really key factors that can make it challenging for us to kind of maintain, um, you know, what is, uh, uh, maintain our goals for what's best for our our mental and physical health. Wow. So complex. The human body is just amazing in so many ways, so many ways we don't even know yet, you know, thank goodness for researchers like you out there taking time to discover these processes. But let's touch on a second on restriction, because I feel too, this is part of the American culture is diet culture. Let's be skinnier. Part of my journey is I started dieting at age nine. Not a good thing to do. I do not advocate putting kids on restrictive diets, but I feel like that set me up for some of these inappropriate relationships I had with food. So yeah. what what evidence do we have out there about food restriction and not even just voluntary food restriction that yeah. so many of us do, like we voluntarily restrict our food, but food yeah. insecurity, like we know yes. that there's still so many people that experience food insecurity and we see that they end up with some of the same tendencies. Can you tell Absolutely. me a little bit more about that? Yeah. So I think this is another area where there's some adversarialness of like, like the idea that um, addictive eating would mean like I want to promote like restriction and and I feel like this for me is why it's really important to focus on kind of the quality of the food that people are ingesting because um, what we see across every addiction if you want to increase the addictiveness of any drug out there food deprivation sets reward systems of the brain up to be to have an amplified response to addictive substances. So if you smoke a cigarette when you're food deprived, it's going to be more reinforcing. If you drink, more reinforcing. Cocaine, more reinforcing when you are food deprived. Because these reward systems that addictive substances hijack are the ones that were set up to make sure we were getting enough calories and enough food. And so they are very, very sensitive to periods of caloric deprivation and restriction and the reward system gets more sensitive and more ready to like set you up to seek it out to go get it. And so I, you know, I really talk to a lot of people about, you know, one of the worst things you can do is this kind of intermittent periods of restriction and caloric deprivation is the perfect setting and condition to enhance the addictiveness of these foods that are already engineered to be really reinforcing. And when we look at the work that we've been doing is that we see that there's kind of two pathways to this kind of addictive profile of eating. Um, The more dominant one is actually that people will start kind of overeating and, and binging first, you know, that they'll have that early reward drive for the these foods and kind of, you know, we'll sneak them or eat to the point where they feel really sick. And then as they get older and body image and kind of you know, parental pressure or things like that start to say, oh my gosh, you're gaining weight. This isn't good. Then there'll be these crash diets and these periods of caloric restriction, which adds fuel to the fire of an existing heightened drive and desire. Um, you know, that they may themselves have an individually strong reward drive for genetic reasons. Um, but then the food themselves is high 
Jack to be, you know, is engineered to be so rewarding. And then when you add this intermittent food deprivation and restriction, it, it just sets the perfect conditions for those things to, to really be problematic. We do see that's about two thirds of folks. It does seem that there's about a third of folks where the, the deprivation and the dieting started first, and there wasn't as much of like a strong driver appeal for these foods. But after you do start depriving yourself and restricting, it can really kind of, again, sensitize these reward systems in a way that sets you up to start to develop a sensitivity to the addictive pull of these foods. Um, and so, you know, one of the things I, I really... I really feel a lot of empathy because, and this is why I like still try and get into this space is that as scientists, like, you know, our dieting culture is so gross. It, you know, it's so, it's not focused on health. It's not focused about worry about your mental, you know, your physical well-being or your mental well-being. It's about, you know, achieving a certain beauty ideal yes. very often in our pop culture. And these beauty ideals are socially constructed. They have racial overtones. They have classist overtones, right? It's not about health. It's about, you know, reaching this beauty ideal. That's what the diet industry is often capitalizing on very much. And so, you know, doing restrictive and unhealthy practices to achieve that beauty ideal, it is not, you know, it, that doesn't, it isn't counterintuitive to what they want to achieve because they don't really care about the health per se, you know, it's about the, the beauty ideal, the Instagram model, things like that. And so I think a lot though, of, I have parents reaching out to me who are saying, I don't know what to do. I have, you know, a, a nine-year-old child they're they're pre-diabetic and they're they have such a strong drive for these foods and the they will if they're there they'll eat them to the point where they throw up and they'll sneak them and they just um you know they just find them so enticing and rewarding that that dopamine signaling you know that you're talking about is just so strong but gosh i, I want to help them you know, where they're not over consuming, it isn't healthy for them. They, they feel awful. They're sluggish afterwards. But if I restrict in any way, or, you know, if I put any bounds around this, people tell me I'm giving them an eating disorder. What do I do? You know, I can't just let it go and not try and, and help this, you know, behavior just continue. But on the other end, the only people who are kind of talking in my ears when I'm Googling are the dieting industry. And so as a scientist, I feel like we have a responsibility to try and help people have strategies that don't set them up to get sucked into this icky, unhealthy diet culture, but can help us maybe put some guardrails up to help people, and especially children who are showing these early signs of struggling, to have a healthier relationship with food without backfiring and causing restrictive, unhealthy, you know, uh, poor image, poor low self-esteem sort of relationship with food. And unfortunately, we really don't have the answer as a scientific community. But I'm worried a little bit that like, there's a pressure to not be in that space as scientists right now, I think because of all the toxicity of the diet community. But I got to tell you, it's not like if we're not there, the diet community is not going to fill that space, you know, through a capitalistic desire to make money. And so as a scientist, I'm trying to figure out how do I fill that space and try and provide some guidance based on helping people and supporting people without encouraging restrictive extreme behaviors, but not seeming like I'm trying to promote a diet culture that's all about thin ideals that are, are, are just total 
crappy social constructions that aren't yes. aiding anyone, you know? Uh, so it's, it's again, spot. it's complex and I'm trying to enter that space without encouraging, you know, without encouraging harm. Absolutely. And, and you answered one of the biggest questions in my mind, which is the chicken and egg of yeah. restriction and this overeating addictive relationship with food, which comes first. And so yeah. you're saying that for a lot of people, it's the starting to consume more and more of these foods. And then maybe they end up with, okay, I need to restrict because I need to look a certain way or I've been told. And maybe that was for me. I think something that's yeah. super interesting is genetics and yeah, yeah, the different yeah. propensity that people have because I was also born a preemie, low birth weight, yeah. and my mom had oh, preeclampsia. So totally. I was stressed in the womb and coming out, kicking and fighting, get me all the calories, you know? So I got yeah. chubby really fast and yeah. I always love food too. So my, my phenotype is I don't discriminate. I love all foods, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. And then it 100%. was the same thing you were saying when I was eight or nine, my family's like, oh no, you know, this yeah. is getting out of hand. You need to stop eating. And then that yeah. began the roller coaster. Plus my perfectionistic personality type of all or nothing, black and white thinking. Yeah. So there's so many little complex pieces, just like totally. you were saying, it's so fascinating. But I agree that for, the children for their, and I always go back, well-being, joy, and yeah. longevity. That's what I want for them. I'm not wanting yeah, them yeah, yeah. to be a certain body size or look great in a bikini or whatever. Yeah. I want them to live long, happy, healthy lives where they feel like they have the potential to do anything that they desire in life. So I'm happy to work with you on that too. If you ever need feedback from yeah. a pediatrician, reach out because that's definitely that one of my wonderful. passions. Oh, this has that been be so wonderful. great. Thank you. So let's wrap up. Oh, I know pleasure. you're so yeah. busy. So just a few more questions. Sure. What do you wish more people knew about food addiction? Yeah, I think that um, I wish more people knew that it doesn't mean all or nothing eating, right? It doesn't mean if there is an addictive pull to these foods, it doesn't mean that oh, you should never, ever, ever have any sort of processed junk food in your life ever again. Um, you know, in the same way that we know alcohol is addictive and, you know, it can be a part of many people's lifestyle. Um, but it does become something you do want to kind of keep an eye on and monitor and make sure it isn't taking on a life of its own. And also think in the same way, you know, with, I think we think about the messages that we provide to our children um, around addictive substances like alcohol, you know, that with our food, it's, it's, you know, it is, um, uh, we really kind of want to be thoughtful around that. And so I think that's something I really wish people knew. And again, I think that idea that misunderstanding that addiction means everybody who tries it becomes addicted and that that's really not the case. Um, you know, it's, it's really a relatively small subsample of individuals who develop a full-blown addiction. But when you're in an environment that is so heavily pushing addictive substances, even if you aren't fully addicted, it can have enough of a pull over you that it can start to negatively impact your mental well-being and your physical well-being. And that, um, you know, as a society for us to advocate for a food environment that promotes health, um, not the, you know, bottom line of the food industry by pushing uh, you know, unhealthy foods is something that we would all benefit from. Yeah, oh, beautiful. I haven't asked you anything about you. So here's your opportunity yeah. to tell us what personal habit are you most proud of and why? 
Oh, I love it. Um, so you talked about meditation and mindfulness. Um, and for me, that is something that a few years ago um, I got into. And I did. It, I have a daily practice, a daily sit. And I think that, um, you know, it's one of those tools that for me, it just feels like I'm doing a weather report, like a check-in with myself. Like so much is happening unconsciously and under the surface and many things that can drive our desire for, you know, addictive substances, like the, our emotions and our stress and our boredom. And so even if I sit for five minutes a day, um, it's been kind of like a game-changing feeling of like peace. And um, for me, I think that's the habit that I'm like most proud of, uh, you know, kind of making something I do every single day. Well, it must be working because you do seem like a very calm and centered person. <laughs> so that's great. <laughs> that's kind of you. <laughs> My lab will tell you that one of the things I'm most notorious for is going on rants, though. I'll be like, read some, I'll see some advertisement and then like for, you know, pushing some food to kids and like trying to trick parents. And also like the first 20 minutes of our lab meeting, like up on my soapbox. And so I'm like, oh, Dr. Gerhardt's on a rant again. And then I need my mindfulness to bring down my, you know, blood pressure. So Everybody's looking you. at their watches here. She goes again. <laughs> yes, totally. I think they're like eating their popcorn. Like, this, you know, and I'm like, ah. so uh, I, maybe I flex it. That's why the mindfulness is so important. <laughs> oh, that's so awesome. Well, Dr. Gerhardt, this has been fantastic. I know that my listeners are going to want to look you up and see all the research yeah. you've done. So how can listeners connect with you and support you in your work? That's a great question. Um, so, uh, I am, um, you can go to my website. You know what? I, I'm going to email you the new link. We just transitioned websites and it, the, the one is out of date in my bio. So I'll send you our new website. Um, you can go to the website. You can see our talks. You can see our papers. You can see the Yale Food Addiction Scale and its scoring information and other research that we have. Um, if you're interested in, uh, you know, donating it all to support this kind of research, you know, feel people can contact me and we can work um, with, uh, the, through the psychology department, there's opportunities to donate to support this sort of research, which is very helpful uh, because, you know, we're up against a very well-resourced food industry yes. um, and supporting this kind of science can be really beneficial in trying to, you know, play catch up and really understand and, uh, you know, what, what's going on in our food environment that's kind of, you know, making it hard for us to have a healthy relationship with our food. Um, so I'll send you the new link, but if you Google me, uh, you'll see Ashley Gerhardt in the Food and Addiction Science and Treatment Lab. That'll pop up and people can also feel free to email me. Great. And I'll link everything in the show notes and we'll make sure people can great. reach you. That is so, so great. So exciting. Well, thank you so much for your time. And I'm so grateful, like I said before, that there are researchers and brilliant people like yourself and other researchers out there that care about this. And I'm so glad we talked because I agree with you that sometimes it feels adversarial. It feels like in our minds when we don't get to meet people and see their true nature in their hearts and what they really care about, we care about the same things. You know, yes, we exactly. have the same goals in mind. We just want to help people. We want to help people get to that well-being they desire. It's not about being right or wrong. It's about working yeah together towards this goal. And I hope that I can bring more communities together like that so that we can more effectively make those strides. Cause when we work together, it's synergistic. So Absolutely. thank you so much for that. And if you could just My leave pleasure. us with one call to action for the week, what one thing can we do this week to improve our lives? Oh, that's such a good question. So I would say, um, 
The one thing I think I'll ask people to do that might be a little different than is usual is, you know, again, I focus so much on the structural forces that, um, you know, make it challenging for us to live our best lives. And so I would say if, if you get a moment, you know, look up who your senator is in Congress, who your House representative is, and, you know, send them an email, give them a call to tell them how important you think it is to set policies um, that promote health um, in, in our food environment, um, through what we subsidize, for what we, um, you know, allow to be marketed, and that that is absolutely essential to, you know, not only our current well-being, but the future generation's well-being. So advocate and take action uh, for there to be, um, you know, for the, the people in power, the change agents, to set us up to succeed rather than to have to try so hard in a challenging environment to, you know, meet our health goals. Oh, that is such a great call to action. And you're right. You're the only one that's ever said that. But you're also right in that we have to make changes to our environment. If we don't make changes to our environment, it's just that much harder. Why I love the Blue Zones projects and people yeah. that are trying to change the culture, the structures around us. And the way we can start is by talking to the people in charge. So thank you so Absolutely. much, Dr. Gearhart. Thank you for being here. And I hope My that you have a, a very plantastic day. Thank you so much. Hey, veggie lover. I hope that you loved today's episode. Will you take a second and do me a huge favor? Please subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss an episode. You're the reason I'm here and I want to share it all with you. Thank you for listening and have a plantastic day. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.